Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. I want us to take a time to pray together. ask you, if Jesus were to stand before you right now, and he would ask you, what do you need? What would you say to him? If if he stood before you right now and said, ask anything of me. He said that to Solomon, and Solomon, the king of Israel, said, I need wisdom to lead the people. And God was so pleased, he said, not only will I give you wisdom, I'll give you riches, honor, and long life, because you have asked for something good. So if he said to you right now, what do you need? What is upon your heart? I think he wants to meet you where you are. Some of you need healing and reconciliation in your marriages or in other relationships. Some of you need to receive forgiveness. Stop trying to forgive yourself. Stop trying to forget the guilt and the shame, but receive forgiveness. Some of you need healing from a broken heart. In fact, I have this little vision in my mind of a little girl whose heart's been broken for many, many years since she was a child. I believe the Lord wants to heal your heart. Some of you need your batteries recharged, that you're worn out in life or in a portion of your life. You need a fresh wind of the Spirit of God to give you hope and strength. And all of us need the wisdom and guidance and direction of the Lord. So, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning, to teach us guide us, direct us, that we might know your truth. Lord, that we would not be afraid of the culture in which we live, but we would see it as a great opportunity. For there are many who are looking for you and don't know where to turn. 
But like Randa shared, as we intercede for those that the Lord puts in our path, that we can be a vessel of hope. Let us all be that, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been in this series entitled Confronting the Chaos, and it doesn't seem that the chaos is getting any less as the days progress. But I really do hope that you see it as an opportunity. You see, when everything is peaceful and easy and comfortable, people aren't interested in something different. When somebody's life is going in a really positive direction, they don't have any difficulty, they don't have any challenges, they are not likely to change. But when there's adversity in the world or in an individual life, it's when people are looking for something different, some hope. As Randa shared, the gentleman, his father had died. Surely that had caused him to question, what is this life about, this journey? And it left his heart in a place where he was open. And you see, in a society that has as much chaos as we have, there are a lot of people who are vulnerable, who are uncertain. And what they desperately need is to encounter a person who is standing firm in the truth and hope of Christ. Now, I said last week that essentially we're in a culture that is anti-theistic or anti-God. Now, that wasn't always the case. When I was a, a kid in public school, we had Bible class every week in class. In fact, how many of you went to a public school and had Bible class in school? Raise your hands. Isn't that interesting? In public school. Would be unheard of today unless it was done outside of the regular school hours. And in those days, there was a respect for God even among people who did not know him. That is, the general consensus of the culture respected the Ten Commandments, respected and honored God. There was, a, there was a healthy fear of God in most of the culture, maybe not all of the culture, even among people who did not know him. But what's happened now is that there is a severe lack of fear of God in most of the culture, oftentimes even among those who do know him. That is, the church that should have a reverent fear of God walks in too much pride. I mentioned last week that really what's happened is that in our pride, in our haughtiness, we have denied God, denied truth, denied really who he is and what he does. And so I've argued over the last few weeks that a healthy culture is one that recognizes that God exists that he created all things, that there is eternal truth. There are some things that are clearly right and wrong. There are things that are absolutely true. 
and that there are transcendent moral principles, you can violate them at a consequence in your own life, but you cannot eliminate them or defeat the moral truths that come from God himself. And yet we're a culture that has tried to do that, so this is why I say that we're a culture that is filled with chaos because we are anti-theistic. We don't believe there's a God, at least in the general consensus. We don't believe he created all things, that we're here by random chance. We have been arguing in the culture for decades now that there is no absolute truth, that all truth is relative, therefore there is no truth, and that morals are not absolute and transcendent, but they're just what you fashion for how you live your life. In fact, I like to bring up with people in a discussion the question of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. You've heard me say that before. That is, in a general discussion, just asking, well, where do you think we came from? Origin. Meaning, how do we live? What is the purpose of life? How do we make an understanding or meaning out of life? Morality is... How should we go about living? How should we treat one another? How should we act individually? And then destiny, what's going to happen after we die? And you know, in a culture of chaos, many people, probably most people, don't have adequate answers to those questions. If we did arrive by random chance, then perhaps there's no inherent meaning to life. There's no moral no moral boundaries by which we should live. We live according to whatever we fashion, and when we die, we just cease. Now, that's a very dark and bleak outlook on life. And really, I don't think most people believe it. See, I believe deep in the heart of people, there is this desire to believe that life has deeper purpose and meaning, even among those who do not know God. And what people are looking for is hope. This is why I say that it's a, really it's a great time to be a Christian and offer hope. Because the early disciples did not sacrifice their lives. I mean, it cost them their lives in most cases. The only uh, one of the early apostles that lived a long life was the apostle John who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos where he received the revelation but most of them died as martyrs. And yet they did so fervently. Like the Apostle Paul knew he was going to die when if he went to Rome, people warned him about that and he went anyway because he felt that was his mission, his calling. And you see, in a culture in which we live today that is anti-theistic, well, we're just in the same culture that the early disciples lived in dominated by Roman Greek paganism, where they were an extreme minority, persecuted by the religious leaders of the day. They didn't have comfort and ease. It was a difficult thing, but they transformed the world. Not in their own strength or their own ability, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And see, God's calling the real church, the true church, to be so filled with the Spirit, so guided by the Spirit, that we would be transformative to the culture in which we live. 
See, it's, it's not a time for comfortable Christianity. It's not a time to be lukewarm. Too much of the church for too long has been lukewarm in this culture. And a lukewarm church is ineffective. That's why I mentioned in some of the services last weekend, the scripture in Revelation 3, that's to the church of Laodicea, where Jesus says, I have this against you, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. Instead, you're lukewarm. And he says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because you can't be effective in a place of lukewarmness. And so, in light of that, what I want to talk about this week and what I'm doing in this series is building to the place where we can then address issues, but I didn't think we could jump straight into addressing issues until we built a foundation. But the foundation is God exists. He created all things. There is truth. There are moral absolutes. And then on top of that, what he has done providentially is record for us really the story of who he is. If somebody asks you, what is the Bible? I'd say it's the story of God. People like to say it's a love letter to us. Well, it is. But really, there is one primary character in the entire story, and that is the Messiah, Jesus. The scripture says in Colossians that he created all things, all things are held together by him and for him. He's right there in the book of Genesis, right at the point of creation. He is the storyline all the way through about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the Messiah who came, the one who is the sacrifice for everyone. He's the story in the book of Revelation, the Messiah who's returning yet again. He's coming with his reward for those who know him. See, the story of truth is throughout the Scripture. And yet, we live in a time where the Scripture itself is under attack. And not only in the culture, but within the church. Now, remember, I distinguish between the organizational church and the true church. The true church if you know Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells within you, we'll point you to the truth of Scripture. But the organizational church often goes in other directions. And really what's going on is this Scripture that we studied really in about the second week of this series in Romans where it says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Who do what? Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, he has made it plain that creation itself speaks of the glory of God such that men are without excuse. That people in their wickedness suppress the truth. Now why is that? It's because in our sinful nature, we want to indulge our pride, our lust, and the truth stands in opposition to our desires to indulge our sinful nature. The truth convicts. The truth points to a different direction. The truth points to accountability that I will give an account for my life. But in our wickedness and in our extreme pride, what we do is suppress the truth because it makes us uncomfortable, it convicts, and it tells us that to indulge our sinful nature, 
is wrong. Yet we live in a time where people don't want anyone to tell them that what they desire to do is wrong. And so there is this conflict between truth and sinful desires that have escalated. It's just before the service, I was talking with a gentleman who was one of our elders. He's an elder emeritus now, and he's like, how did we get here? How did it, the culture so rapidly change? And it, to me, if, now if you're very, very young, you don't have the context to see it, but if you've got a little age, then you recognize that the culture has changed very rapidly, although the roots of the change have been there for decades. But it has manifest quickly. And so here we are at a time when evil is very rampant, very outward. I think partly because God has withdrawn his hand of protection and has allowed evil as a part of judgment. But that evil tempts, attempts to suppress the truth at all times. And not only in the culture, but in the church. And when I look at the landscape of the church in the United States, and now I'm talking about the organizational church as well as the true church, I think what we have essentially is this, that the church is in as much chaos as is the culture, that it looks essentially the same. In statistics that Barna does and has done over the years about the lifestyles of Christians and non-Christians, in terms of their sinful behaviors, there's no significant difference. That the church is just like the rest of the culture. We have so compromised with the culture. In fact, in a Barna study from a couple of years ago, 2021, he was asking about biblical worldview. And so there are questions asking people, do you have a biblical worldview and in this study, 51% of the population said, yes, that I have a biblical worldview. But then in the study, what they go on to do is ask questions about your worldview. And after asking the questions, the conclusion of the study was that 6% of the U.S. population has a genuine biblical worldview. That 51% of people say, oh yes, I do. But if you look at what they really believe, the answer is no, they don't. For example, one of the questions is, do you believe in reincarnation? And a large portion of the people who said I have a biblical worldview said yes. Well, you can't reconcile those two. The scripture says it's appointed once unto man to die and then judgment. There is no recycling and second opportunity but what's happened is even within the church we have integrated brought into our belief system things that are non-biblical because they are cultural and of course a lot of the questions that Barna would ask would be about sinful uh, behaviors and what is your position on that and the culture really doesn't understand truth now, in many respects, that's not surprising because some of you may have seen that very recently in the last few months, there was a study that came out of Arizona Christian University 
about the biblical worldview of church leaders. And in that study, it found that 37% of lead pastors, senior pastors, have a biblical worldview. 37% of people leading churches have a biblical worldview. Now, that might surprise you. It does not surprise me at all. Because I would dare say that a, a a smaller percentage of seminaries teach a biblical worldview than 37%. That there are many liberal ideologies in a lot of the seminaries of the culture. At best, they're often intellectual, moderate positions, but normally or often, they are very liberal, very humanistic positions that really don't reflect the truth of Scripture. And largely it's because many people in the organizational church do not believe that the Scriptures are inspired and reliable for instruction, but rather that modern man, intellectual man, educated man, must determine what is good and right in the context in which we live. 37%, that's all, about a third of pastors have a biblical worldview. Yet the scripture says, in fact, just yesterday morning, I was just asking the Lord to lead me to a scripture to read, and the one he led me to is the scripture that says not many should hold themselves out as teachers because they will be judged more strictly. And I believe that's very, very true. This is why you should never follow the teaching of a man or follow a human you should test everything. You should test everything I teach or anybody else. But I find in the modern church that too often we, we put on a lofty pedestal somebody who's made a name for themselves, sometimes without testing their theology. In fact, during World War II, there was a pastor in England by the name of Leslie Weatherhead who became very popular because of some of the things he was teaching, he, he was on the radio encouraging people during the time of, of the Nazis bombing England, things like that. And so a lot of people just assumed that what he was teaching was good across the board. But if you dug later into his theology, he was extremely liberal, denied some of the foundational principles of Christianity. And yet, because he became noteworthy, and some of the things he was saying on the radio at the time were actually good, but because he became noteworthy, people assumed something good, and you can't do that. A lot of people assume because somebody's in a position that then we should respect that they are teaching the truth when in fact they might be a false teacher or a false prophet. Look, at the time of the writing of the New Testament, how much of the New Testament talks about false teachers infiltrating or false prophets? A lot. And it has not changed. There are a lot of false teachers in the culture today, a lot of false prophets, and a lot of them are within the organizational church. I am convinced there are a lot of people in leadership positions in churches who do not know Christ who are there because of their intellectual abilities or maybe their maneuverability, that is their political scheming to get into a position of power and influence, who do not know him. Now I wanna talk about 
what's really going on, I think, in the liberal church. And last week, if you were here, I was talking about this idea of deconstruction, that there are many people who advocate deconstruction, deconstructing the culture, tearing down institutions of different types, such as the family or the church, and that those who are advocates of deconstruction often have an attitude of let's radically transform things without a recognition of, well, what is going to replace what you're deconstructing? Because deconstruction has been applied in other cultures in revolutions, and oftentimes what followed the deconstruction was far worse than what existed prior to that time. And what's going on in the church, the organizational church, is deconstruction of the truth or of the Bible. And you may not recognize how bad it is. I'm not sure I recognize how bad it is, but I get a grasp of it, a glimpse of it, enough to recognize there's great concern. First of all, that we are here as a product of chance, that we have evolved, that is what the liberal church believes. We talked about it a few weeks ago. We had Dr. West talking about it. I used to believe evolution was true. I don't anymore simply because the evidence of the complexity of human life overwhelms the simplicity of the ideology of evolution. But if you believe that mindset, then it, then it infiltrates other things. And the liberal church believes that we are co-creators with God. In other words, God's evolving with us. The whole theology called open theism basically says that God responds to our choices and God is evolving with us. And there are some people who have rather um, prominent names who are very much open theists and advocates of open theism rather than what the scripture says clearly that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever that he is changing with us, which basically makes us what? Little gods. That the Bible is not God-breathed. The scripture says very clearly that it is inspired, God-breathed. In other words, he providentially recorded what he wanted to be recorded throughout all of history. Now, here's an interesting thing. Let's say you tried to get together 40 people to write on one subject. And you wanted them to write a consistent story in a book that you're going to put together. And you just told them the primary theme is this. You would have a very, very hard time making that book have consistency. Even if you were working in the same time frame and people could collaborate with one another and talk to one another. The Bible is written over a period of thousands of years by many different authors who never saw each other in many cases. Of course, the New Testament disciples did. And it has one consistent theme throughout, which is Christ. And it, the consistency and reliability of the story is absolutely overwhelming, which demonstrates inherent reliability of the providential hand of God recording for us that which is true and which we can rely upon. The liberal church believes that the Bible is filled with a lot of myth and metaphor, 
that it has some history in it, but it has historical eras. In fact, as the field of archaeology began to develop in the 1800s, later 1800s, 1900s, and so forth, there were many people in the church who were very afraid that archaeology was going to discover things that would disprove the Scripture. In fact, what has occurred in the field of archaeology now for about 100 years is just the opposite of that. That archaeological discoveries have repetitively verified statements in Scripture, like kings that are recorded in the Old Testament. And some, of, some people groups that were unheard of, some people in the liberal academia said, well, see, the Scriptures are wrong, they're false in this area because there is no such people group. And then later, archaeology discovered that, in fact, they existed. It's happened over and over and over and over that archaeology has affirmed the truth of Scripture. And, of course, the greatest uh, archaeological discovery, which really wouldn't quite fit in that category, were the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, when a shepherd boy who was chasing a, a goat, I think it was, threw a rock into a cave, heard something break, went in to find out what it was. It was a piece of pottery that led to other discoveries of hundreds of fragments of documents that, re, that covered every portion of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. And it were the, they were the oldest fragments ever recorded that absolutely affirmed all of Scripture. Now, the most interesting thing to me about that was that it occurred in 1947, right at the time when the nation of Israel was being reformed as a nation, God said, here, I'm going to give you a little evidence just to get you very excited about what's going on. That I don't believe the Bible is filled with myth and metaphor. It's filled with truth. A lot of the church has integrated Eastern mysticism. When I say Eastern mysticism, the various Eastern religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, all these types of things where there's pantheism, that is, belief that everything is God, all the environment around us. This is why part of the church worships the creation rather than the creator because they're pantheistic ideologies. The liberal church denies the virgin birth and denies the resurrection. Here we are at Easter, and I've said before, if the resurrection is not true, we need to close up shop and go home right now because this is a waste of time. But if the resurrection is true, then there is nothing more important. And the liberal church denies anything supernatural. See, the liberal church only looks at that which is the intellectual, rational, which can be accepted by the academic community so the virgin birth is supernatural, it's denied. The resurrection is supernatural, it's denied. It denies miracles of any form, that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but he was not a miracle worker, which means really he's not God. See, the, the liberal church denies anything supernatural, including the demonic and the angelic, that the demonic, anything in the scriptures, even though Jesus cast out demons, anything in the scriptures that talks about the demonic, the intellectual church would say, well, that's just a different way of talking about the things that we understand now from a different perspective. We wouldn't call it the demonic. In fact, I even recently learned about a, a theology that argues that, that once the canon was complete, there was no more need for angelic work, so angels don't work today. 
Unfortunately, the demonic did not get that message. And we need angelic intervention as much today as at any point. You know, the scripture talks about various places where angels clearly were involved. And the most interesting thing to me about angels is what the scripture says, that you and I will judge them. Which undoubtedly what's going to happen is after we're judged, we're in heaven, God's going to say, here are the angels who had to work around you, and your responsibility is to judge their effort. Now, maybe for some of you, you feel like, well, they didn't do a good enough job. In my case, I feel like I'm lucky to be alive if it weren't for angels. I mentioned before, I drove over a cliff when I was 16 years old and stopped without going down the mountain. There was one tree there, not a huge tree, that stopped. There must have been an angel standing there holding that tree up, saying, here he is again. Oh, boy. Now, here's one of the most disturbing portions for me. In the liberal church argues that the early disciples created the idea of Jesus' divinity. In other words, that he was just a man, a good man, a good moral teacher, but he was not God. And in fact, there's a professor at the University of North Carolina, I think he's still there, who does a teaching how Jesus became God. And what he teaches essentially is that the disciples made up the idea of these supernatural things. And when they were writing what we record as the New Testament scripture, they just put in the miracles. They put in the resurrection. Anything supernatural they inserted to embellish their story. And so they created the idea of Jesus' divinity rather than leaving him as a mere man. But as I was alluding to earlier, that would have been a rather foolish thing to do, to create the supernatural things of Jesus, promulgate the idea of him being God in order that you could die a martyr's death. You know, if you're going to promulgate lies, most people do so in order to gain something in this world, material or wealth or whatever it might be. Most people aren't doing that in order that they might suffer greatly for his name. See, if, look, if you know him, if you've had an encounter with Christ and he's transformed your life, you know he's God. He didn't become divine. He has eternally existed in the Godhead. He's eternally God. And he's the only one who can radically change life. Yet the liberal church doesn't look at it as a personal transformation. The liberal church sees the gospel differently. See, you and I would see the gospel, I hope you see the gospel, as Christ coming to an individual life by the power of the Holy Spirit wooing you to himself, you humbling yourself, he imparts faith to you, then he comes to dwell within you as you receive him, and then he transforms your life from the inside out. That as long as you have breath, the Holy Spirit lives with you. He guides you. He walks with you every day. And I believe once we enter into heaven, it's going to be the same way that you'll be in perfect union with the Spirit of God throughout all of eternity. But the liberal church does not see the gospel as a personal gospel. 
In fact, the reason they don't is because they would say, man is basically good. We're not in need of a personal savior. The problem with the world is not the hearts of individuals, it's the systems of the world. They would speak about systemic sin rather than personal sin, and the job of the church is to reconstruct society. See, the whole deconstruction movement is in the church in this regard. Deconstruct society, reconstruct society without addressing the problem of the hearts of men. See, there is a deconstruction that needs to take place, but it's in my own heart. The reconstruction can only be done by the master creator who created that heart and soul. In fact, last night after the service, a very young man came up to ask me a very interesting question. He was basically asking, do you think the world will ever be where all these things are good, like the different portions of society will will be better and improved and so forth? And it was a very good question. It was a very reasonable question, especially from a young man, because I think every young generation has the idea that we're going to do it better. We look around at the world. We realize something's wrong with the world. These old people have messed it up. We're going to do it better. I mean, that's really, that's what every young generation thinks until they reach a later portion of life and think, those old people I knew way back there knew more than I thought they did because they had the scars from weathering this world. And so this young man asked me last night, you think it'll ever be? I said, no, we're in a fallen world. See, the utopian idea is we'll reconstruct the world as we're evolving forward and it'll all be better someday. It'll all be perfected. Yet will, but not until Christ returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth. And there's no more sin, no more crying, no more pain, no more death. That we'll see him face to face, not through a glass dimly. And that all of life will be different. The liberal church says that love is the ultimate ethic, which sounds good. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the greatest of these is love. The problem is you can define love in various ways. And the liberal church would say that sometimes the loving thing to do is abort a child or if you're in a loving relationship that is sexually immoral according to the scripture, it's okay because A, we discount the scripture and B, you're in a loving relationship. It's, a, it's loving to euthanize people. Euthanasia is putting to death someone. We euthanize animals when they're dying. Well, there are a lot of people who advocate euthanizing the old, or the weak, or the newborns. I mentioned last week, in some of the services, maybe not in this one, but I think in this one about Peter Singer, this philosopher at Princeton University who argued for euthanasia of infants if they were defective in some way, that parents should be able to determine that the loving thing to do is not have them live in this life if they're defective in some way to euthanize them. Now, really, when you get a grasp on that definition of love, you realize what's behind it is the work of the demonic because Satan always comes to kill, steal, and destroy. 
And if there is an attack upon life to rob life, it's Satan wanting to kill and destroy. In fact, I said before that you can violate in your own will moral principles, but you do so repetitively, what will happen is your actions will wreak death upon your soul that your sinful behavior will kill, steal, and destroy your own life. The liberal church believes that governments are forces of good, which again sounds good on the surface. But what is the primary responsibility of government scripturally? It is to restrain evil. And any time government breaks down and there is a lack of an agent to restrain evil, chaos ensues in society. We saw that back in the summer of 2020. Yeah. Now, the biblical responsibility of government is to restrain evil, to provide for justice and the public good. Now, what we've tried to do is make government God. That is, Ask government to do things that only God can do. You see, if the problems of the world are systemic, they're not personal, then what we need to do is have government change the systems to perfect the world. Well, you can change the systems over and over and over, and you're not going to perfect the world because it's the hearts of human beings that have to be changed. And much of the liberal mindset is government should be used as an agent to not create equality of opportunities, but to create equality of outcomes. And equality of opportunities is a good thing. That's justice. Equality of outcomes is not justice because the scripture says you reap what you sow. And a person who sows righteousness will reap the benefit of that. This person who sows evil will reap the consequence of that. And actually what you could do is you could create a perfect equality of outcomes in society at some point. Redistribute everything, make, make perfect equality, leave it alone for 10 years and you'll be back to a place of significant inequality because of the personal responsibility of individuals. So yes, government has a responsibility, but it is not to force every person into a position of Equality, that's what Marxism did. That's what communism tried to do, was force every person into a place of equality. Because Marx, who himself was quite a loser, I mean, really, read about Marx. Why anybody would want to follow such a person, I do not know. He was irresponsible with regard to his own family. He mooched off of his parents to live. He did not take care of his, of his immediate family. He had at least one child die of suicide, and I think two did, if I remember correctly. He did not even attend the funeral of his own wife. And yet, people look at him as an intellectual ideologue that we should follow. He was a deconstructionist. Marxism is deconstructionism. That's what it really is. Deconstruct society, and somehow we're going to have a utopia thereafter. I don't think so. See, a government that is the healthiest government restrains evil. That's why I like the defund the police ideology that was around was absolute foolishness. You defund the police in any city, you better run. Don't stay. That's why you should always encourage the police officers. 
I do that. I try to do that wherever I am. Encourage police officers. Because they have a very, very hard job. They see the sin nature of people more than the average person. And they deal with it day in and day out. Periodically risking their own lives. See, government has a responsibility to create the opportunity where people can make choices that honor God. The liberal church doesn't believe that hell is real, that that too is something we shouldn't talk about in the church. And it is, to me, the most discomforting of all ideas in Scripture. But I can't get away from it. It's there. Jesus himself talked about people being cast into the lake of fire with Satan. It's real. Now, the liberal church and sort of the escape hatch is, well, death might be the end of all things anyway. In other words, there may not be an eternal life. I found this more than once among people who are atheists or that they, they say, well, when you die, you just cease to exist. That is, you didn't know you existed before, you evolved, here you are, you just cease to exist, you won't know that you ever lived. That's sort of the, the easy out. Like, I don't have to be accountable for my life, but it's a lie. The scripture says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men, that you will give an account for every careless word. Now, that part makes me uncomfortable too, but I take comfort in the fact that Jesus will have forgiven me for all of those careless words I should not have said. The liberal church believes that Christianity should be relevant, which again, sounds good on the surface. I mean, we do need to be relevant to the culture, but what that's talking about is take out anything that the modern intellectual mind cannot accept. Take out discussion of the demonic. Take out discussion of miracles and things of that nature. If you boil it down just to a simple, rational understanding, then we're relevant to the culture. Well, then really we're useless. I had a professor in graduate school who went to seminary at Yale. I've mentioned this before. Some of you might recall that in the seminary, in the chapel at Yale, which has become an extremely liberal seminary, he said, there's a large Bible in there where you could go in and you could mark out any scripture that you found objectionable. And of course, large portions have been marked out, anything to do with sin or the supernatural and so forth. But that's essentially the ideology of the liberal church today, that we become relevant by taking away that which is difficult, which makes people uncomfortable. Well, the gospel makes people uncomfortable. Because you see, in order to encounter Christ, you must come to a place of brokenness and repentance. And the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit will convict you and make you uncomfortable. God will squeeze your soul if that's what's necessary to bring you to the place of salvation. For which I'm personally very thankful. Because... God certainly put the pressure on me for a significant period of time, brought me to the place where I would be broken before him. I blame my sister who prayed for me during that time period. Made life miserable. But I thank her now. The church wants to replace 
the message of a personal salvation. The theology of the gospel is personal salvation. Replace it with what's referred to as liberation theology. Liberation theology has been around since about the 1960s. It's Marxist in its roots. It was first popular among some priests in South America, but it's expanded in different places. In fact, uh, you'll find some leaders in some prominent parts of the church today at very high positions that are essentially liberation theologists. And they believe what I was talking about earlier, that the gospel message is about liberating certain groups of people from their societal oppression. It's not about a personal gospel of transformation. It's about liberating a select group of people from whatever oppression they've been experiencing. And that means changing societal systems as if somehow that's going to cause people to treat others rightly. You know, there are a lot of groups of people that are oppressed, wrongly treated, but you can't systemically or from an organizational standpoint force other people to treat them rightly. There has to be a change in the hearts of people. But the liberal church basically says that our message shouldn't be one of you can be personally changed to one of how can we change the systems of the world around us. And see, this is why in a study of do people have a biblical worldview, a very small percentage do because a large portion of the church has deconstructed the truth. In fact, there's some portions of the church that are extremely liberal. And of course, in every denomination, you'll find there are still pockets of people who stand for the truth. And yet, much, oftentimes, the majority of church organizations have gone in a liberal direction. And of course, if you look at the landscape of the various denominations in this country, you see how that's been going on and is still going on today as they fracture apart. There are always at least some portion that stand for the truth and hold to the truth. But we live in a time where much of the church has abdicated its responsibility to stand for truth. But there is hope. You see, the hope is not in the work of man, not in an organization. The hope is in the work of the Spirit of God. And do you realize that there are many, many, many churches around this country and in the world like celebration that God raised up from nowhere? I mean, this church didn't exist a little over 25 years ago. And God has raised up many churches to stand in the truth. Now, there are a lot of churches that don't stand there some of which are newer. But essentially, this is a revival movement, has been for 25 years. And there are lots of pockets of those. Places where God is saying, trust me, believe me, stand in the truth and watch what I will do. Now, as a church, we believe that all scriptures God breathed 
that it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that we are equipped for the work of God. That's why I teach from the scripture every single week. I don't teach from chicken soup for the soul. Some people do. The scripture also says that above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, but rather that any prophecy, any truth of scripture had its origin, not in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, this is where you have to understand that the Holy Spirit is absolutely providentially in charge and he is the one who has maintained for us the truth that we find in Scripture. And so as a church, we state in our bylaws this, that we believe the Bible is God's perfect revelation to mankind, that the Scriptures of both the Old and the New Testaments were supernaturally inspired. They're without error in the original manuscripts. That is, when God wrote them, they had to be without error because he wrote them that they contain eternal answers to, God, to humankind's problems and they are the authoritative source of Christian doctrine, precepts, and teaching. That the Bible is the foundation upon which the church is to operate and is the basis for church government, governance. And modern biblical translations that are literally consistent with ancient manuscripts are useful for instruction and teaching. Now, why have we come to this point in talking about the cultural chaos? Because the jumping off place is we're going to talk about issues in the culture from a biblical standpoint. And I absolutely believe the truth is there that can apply to every issue in which we find the chaos today in society. And so this coming week, of course, we're going to have a very special week for Easter. But then the weekend after that, I'm going to come back to this subject and talk about why can we trust the Scripture? What is the historical evidence of the Old Testament, the New Testament? And then we'll move from there to start to address issues. What is the truth? But I don't blindly just say, well, I believe what the Bible says. I believe because God has preserved it and he's left the evidence for it. The truth is there, but it's suppressed by the wickedness of men. But those who have a heart to see can see the truth. And so we'll be exploring more and more about trusting the truth. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org. And make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.